Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, uh, this morning we are uh, in our final week of this mini-series, Male and Female, within our bigger series of Genesis. And this morning we're going to look at uh, marriage roles, uh, the role of the man, the role of the the wife. And um, it's a little controversial. People have uh, pretty strong opinions about this uh, in culture in fact, what we're going to do as we do this is uh, we're going to try to talk about some of the harder issues and the misunderstandings, um, but, but people uh, can get a little edgy about this uh, topic, and so I just want to note the nearest exit for myself. <laughs> My car's parked right out there. Okay, good. I'm, I'm good to go. So if you're willing and able, once you stand, we're going to read from uh, the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in chapter 2, then the Lord said, then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is fit for him. And then just one verse from chapter 3. So this is the fall. Eve has listened to the serpent. Adam is right there with her, but he is, he is passive. And so God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And then from Ephesians chapter five, wives submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed it, they care for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, 
Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning I want to talk really just about three words, three beautiful words. But interestingly enough, these three words have actually become in our culture and even in the church sometimes, they've become three dirty words. Are you ready? Here we go. Headship, helper, submission. These words have caused hardship in some ways, but there's confusion. They've become words that some say they're even repulsed by. I've done premarital counseling for 25 years, but recently more and more couples are saying, when I talk about these words to them, they just shake their heads and say no. Rebecca McLaughlin sums it up. She says, I had three problems with Ephesians 5. The first was that wives should submit. I knew women who were just as competent as men. My second problem was the idea that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. I mean, it's one thing to submit to Jesus, the self-sacrificing king of the universe. It's quite another to offer that kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man. And my third problem was the idea that the husband was the head of the wife. This seems to imply a hierarchy that's at odds with men and women equal status as image bearers of God. All right, you ready? Three dirty words. Can we restore them to beauty? First, take your sermon outline. First, the role of the servant leader. So the first word, headship. In the beginning, God created male and female in his image. And from the first pages of the Bible, we see that God is setting up the husband, the man, as the leader. He is created first. He's in charge of naming the animals as well as Eve. And then Paul says in Ephesians, wives, submit to your husband, for the husband is your head. He is the leader. Yet, Genesis shows us that men and women are created absolutely equal. Both are made in God's image, equally blessed, equally given dominion over the earth, that men and women together are to carry out God's mandate to build civilization and culture. And both of them are to do art and science and leadership and build communities. And there's nothing in the scripture that says women are at all ever inferior to men. But the Bible makes it clear that men and women are equally important, but importantly different. Together, they are to reflect God's image of the world. They are made to complement. Men cannot reflect the image of God alone. Women cannot reflect the image of God alone. Take aluminum foil. You pull out a sheet of aluminum foil, you can look at it and it reflects your image, but it's kind of cloudy. Take a clear piece of glass, like a window, 
it reflects your image, but not very clearly. But if you put aluminum foil behind a piece of glass, it becomes a mirror and it reflects the image in all of its glory. So together, men and women reflect God's image. Equally important, but importantly, different. In Genesis 2, God says it's not good. It's the first time he ever says something is not good before the fall. He says something's imperfect. Man should not be alone. And then the fall, both husband, husband's role and the wife's role gets twisted. It says that the woman's desire will be contrary to the husband and he will rule over her. So there's going to be this tension, this conflict, this power struggle. Now men, because of the fall tend to fail in two different ways, either by dominating or by passivity. Here's what one man told uh, his pastor when he met with them. He said, in order to make sure that there's no question about who's in charge, I make sure both my wife and I let scripture rule our actions. For instance, when I come home from work and I'm trying to relax by watching TV or reading the paper, my wife may ask for some help with the kitchen or with the kids. Well, to make sure that we both know who is the head of our home, I flip a coin in my mind. And if it comes up heads, I help. If it comes up tails, I don't. That way, there's no question of who's in charge. I think the coin in his head has tails on both sides. That's not leadership, that's sin. You know, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and Eve takes the fruit from the serpent, where's Adam? He's right there with her. He's passive. One woman said to me, she said, I, my husband has, does not make any decisions in the home. She says, I don't have three kids. I have four. Kathy Keller says this. She says, I will never be the one to dismiss or make light of the horrible record of abuse suffered by women at the hands of men who wield twisted and unbiblical definitions of headship and submission. The church should not overlook or minimize one iota of that suffering. But I would beg that we do not throw the baby out with the dirty bathwater, bail the bathwater, but save the baby which in this case is a rightful acceptance of the gender roles as Jesus both defined and embodied. So in headship, a wife submits to her husband as to the Lord. This does not mean unconditional obedience. It says, as to the Lord. It does not say, in the same way you obey the Lord. This isn't like, you know, little wifey, Victorian age, kind of throwback, maybe go back to the 60s, better homes and garden type of view thing. No, decisions in the marriage are to be made together with discussion and reasoning and conflict and wrestling and the husband putting the needs of the wife ahead of his own. And it's not like the wife just goes along with every decision in the marriage. That's not what the Bible is saying. However, there are times, some of them rare, in every marriage where there's just a tiebreaker decision and somebody's got to break the tie. And the husband, in this case, needs to lead and make the decision for the good of his family and the good of his wife fully considered. Tim Keller is a retired pastor of a church called Redeemer in New York City. 
It's a church of 5,000 people. In 1980, he was wrestling with going to New York to start this church from scratch. And he really felt like this is kind of what God was pushing him to do, encouraging him to do. And um, so he's talking to his wife, Kathy, about it. And she did not want to go. She did not want to leave their little community and take her, their three little boys to New York City, to this big city. And she expressed her strong doubts. She just let him know exactly what she thought. And Tim said this, well, okay, well, then we're just not gonna go. And she said, oh, no, you don't. Don't you push this off on me. She said, that's passivity, that's abdication. She said, it's your job to break the log jam. She said, it's my job to pray and listen to God until I can joyfully support your call. And it's your job to pray and lead and listen, but to, but to lead this family. Later on, Kathy and the whole family said it was the most manly thing they'd ever seen him do to that point. You know, when we think about leadership, we might think of abuse of power. We might just think of the use of power, you know, where you just, a leader just snaps and everybody just does what they say. But we also think about privileges, right? Like, you know, the parking space, the corner office, you know, the best tickets on an airline flight. When you walk in the plane and you see those big, huge seats on that seven hour flight and you're in the coach, you know, you, know, you think about privileges, the night before Jesus washed, the night before Jesus died, he's the king of the universe and he washes his disciples' feet, teaching them about leadership. And this is what he said. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, has washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. Later, Jesus said that the religious leaders, they misused authority by lording it over people. And he told his disciples, not so with you. You are to serve. But if you look at um, Ephesians here, the only command that is given to the husband is to in the role of marriage is to love his wife. Four times it's repeated that men are commanded to love. That's it. Men are not told to exert their headship over their wife. They are only told to love. Headship is never to be demanded or taken, only received. The husband has no right to demand it, only to receive it. The Bible never says to men, rule your wife. No, it says, love your wife. The wife is not accountable to her husband as to her role. She is accountable to the Lord. A husband is to win his wife over to his headship by loving her sacrificially. I mean, think about Jesus, right? He is our leader. We are to follow him, obey him, and submit to him in all things. How does he win us over? Does he use his power and his dominion and his authority that he rightfully has 
to strong arm us into submission? Is that how he rolls? No. He melts you with his love. And you willingly follow. So what's the purpose of headship? What is God after? Paul says it's to make the bride holy and radiant without spot or wrinkle. It's, it's sanctification. It's Christ-likeness. But Paul adds to this further because he refers back to Genesis. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh, of course, means the physical union. But the Bible shows us that it means so much more. It means total completeness. That everything in life of the marriage is weaving together for a beautiful oneness. And Paul, he then says, the way this happens, this is fascinating. The way this happens is the husband is to love his wife as he does his own body. What do you do do with your body? You feed it. You care for it. You're attentive to it. You take care of it, right? You know, I'll tell you something. I know when I need to take a shower. I know when I need to brush my teeth. Uh, I know when I have bad breath sometimes. And I know when to change my socks. Aren't you so proud of me? Think about your own body. You are intensely aware of your needs. And the husband is to think about his wife's need just as intensely as he does his own. And that means all of her needs, emotional, physical, spiritual, leading her, praying for her and with her, affirming her gifts and abilities and supporting her passions in life. Now, some people, when they hear something like that, they say, Yeah, but that is still so demeaning of women because that just encourages this notion that that wives, that women are just, they're just gonna wilt unless their husband is there to take care of them and build them up. Well, the scriptures say that neither the husband nor the wife is complete without their spouse and that biblical headship is designed to bring redemptive wholeness to both. And you've probably noticed that men who respect and cherish their wife usually are more whole people than those who do not. But the husband is to be the leader, which means he is to be the lead repenter. And you know what? He may not even be the lead sinner in the family, but he is to be the lead repenter. I've told you guys before that uh, whenever I preach on marriage, like two weeks before I preach on marriage or, or have premarital counseling, my wife and I tend to fight a lot more. And I usually am the one who is causing the fights. And this is the second time I've preached on marriage in four months. So true to form, recently, uh, I, I have not been a good husband. I have been grumpy, I have been impatient, and painfully unkind to her uh, in the last week and a half. I mean, it's like God just says, all right, Jones, I'm gonna bring out all your ugly and all of my failures just seem to come out. Repenting is leadership. So men, are you repenting? 
to your wife? Are you going deeper than just saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry, leave it alone. No, are you going deeper? Are you repenting? Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. In 1990, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin resigned prematurely from his esteemed position as president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. It was his life's work. He was well respected for his accomplishments. And he resigned prematurely, not because there was a scandal, but it still caused quite a shock. He resigned prematurely because of his wife's Alzheimer's. I mean, he had the money to hire as many people as he needed to hire to care for her. But he resigned quietly because he wanted to personally take care of her the rest of her life. Well, this caused a shockwave of amazement, so much so that Christianity Today reached out for an interview. And in his interview, he said he was shocked at the overwhelming response of so many people, that that husbands and wives were hearing about their story because pastors were telling it in church and they were renewing their vows, that hundreds of young people stopped putting off marriage, that marriage retreats were sold out, publishers wanted a book. And McCookin said, it's a total mystery to me is why people are responding this way. Until a friend of his, who is an oncologist, who lives and works with people who are dying, told him the reason. He said the reason is, is because women almost always stand by their men. But few men stand by their women. How curious it is that this man, McQuilkin, dying to himself and serving his wife would become the leader of men and women across the nation. That he would actually impact more people by caring for his wife than he did in his career. Could it be that you know a man like that? Second, let's look at the role of the wife, the strong helper. The two other words we'll talk about here, helper and submission. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband in everything. Larry Crabb nails it on the head when he says this. Is submission really an offensive, dirty word that makes unreasonable and demeaning demands on women? That can't be. God never speaks a word that would dishonor his creation. So helper, God creates uh, men and women uh, in his own image. They are equally uh, important. But it says, he says that Adam is, is something is not good. Adam is not enough. And the word helper here is actually used many other places in the Bible to refer to God's strength. It's often a military term Uh, reinforcements by which a battle would be lost. To help someone is because they are lacking, because they're, they're not enough to get it done, and so they need strong help. It says that she is suitable. She fits with him, corresponding, completing him because he is weak. Now the fall happens, and men and women both abuse power. But Women, at times, 
can try to sinfully take control by manipulating, by criticizing, by demeaning or nagging. One time I was, uh, was teaching a class on marriage uh, here at this church. And we had, a, we had a big class. We had over 100 people in the class. And I was talking in the class. I said, listen, I said, the Bible talks about the quarrelsome and nagging wife. And it says that, that the husband's only response is that he, he wants to live on the corner of the roof. And I said to the class, I said, so women have this propensity because of the fall uh, to nag, to try to take control of every situation. And I said, isn't it interesting that none of the women in this class today, isn't it interesting that none of the women think of themselves as a nag? And you could have heard a pin drop. And I looked at the men and none of them were breathing. (laughs) Wives, submit to your own husband. Now the scriptures teach God has established um, men and women are equal but different roles. But God's established principles of leadership in numerous other relationships. So you have parents and children. You have church leaders and members, employers and employees, government and citizens. I mean, Jesus submits to his own parents as a boy, even though he is superior to them, even in that moment. Now, Paul in Corinthians makes this strong argument that people can be equal in dignity, but call, one can be called to a falling role. He says, God, and, God the Father and the Son are equal. The Father is the head of Christ. He sends the Son, and the Son willingly submits to the Father. But that does not make him inferior. But sometimes, um, you know, women will chafe against this idea of headship. And they'll say, well, why is the man the leader? Why does it have to be that way? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But why was Jesus, the son, the one who suffered and served? Why wasn't it the father? Could have been. We don't know. But we do know that it was a sign of his greatness, not a sign of his weakness. So how does this work? What does the husband do and not do? What does the wife do and not do? You know, your family uh, did it one way, my family did it another. You know, who takes out the garbage? Who who works outside the home? Who Who does the checkbook? You know, who does the dishes? Who vacuums? I do, because I'm really good at it, okay? <laughs> so how do, you, how do you figure all that out? And then, of course, there is the most important question in every marriage that must be answered in order for there to be any peace in the home. Who is the boss of the TV remote? <laughs> you gotta know that one. Well, the Bible deliberately does not give us answers. The basic role of leader and helper are binding, but every couple must learn a dance of the roles worked out and expressed in their marriage with humility. The Bible does say here that the wife is to submit to her husband in everything. Did you catch that? 
everything. That's kind of comprehensive. That means financial, parenting, spiritual, everything the couple faces together. But it can't be micromanaging because we already learned that the, the husband is to love the wife like he loves his own body, considering everything. So that means the wife is to bring all of her gifts, all of her abilities, all of her thoughts, and that the husband trusts her because he knows, he knows he needs a strong helper. But why does Paul say everything? Because they are one. They're one. You know, on our staff, we have this leadership principle, okay? You know, raise, raise the chief, okay? But we have other leaders on the team, other, other staff teams. So we have this leadership principle, and it is this. The leader is not necessarily the smartest, the most talented, the most competent person, not even the most spiritual person. They're just the leader. They're just the one who's been made the leader. And their job is to leverage the strength of everybody on the team to bring about the best kind of flourishing for the mission. That's the job of the leader. So the leader walks into a meeting. The leader walks into the room. He knows one thing primarily. I'm not the strong arm my team. I can't. I'm not even the smartest person here. Robin Shipes is. So I got to leverage the team. This is what Rebecca McLaughlin said. She said, I've been married for a decade and I am not naturally submissive. I am naturally leadership oriented. I hold a PhD and a seminary degree and I am a trained debater of the family. How'd you like to be married to a trained debater? I'm like, call for reinforcements. But look what she says. Thank God I married a man who is man enough to celebrate this. And yet, it's a daily challenge for me to remember my role in this drama and notice opportunities to submit to my husband as to the Lord. Not because I'm naturally more or less submissive or because he is naturally a loving leader, but because Jesus went to the cross for me. The mic has been dropped. I talked to um, seven different women in preparation for this sermon. Just had some questions, just listened. Um, and one of the women I talked to, she, she, she shocked me by what she said. This is what she said. She said, my husband has the harder role in marriage. Mine is easy compared to his. And I thought, that's it? That's it? Each spouse should think that their, their spouse has the harder role. I mean, I know my wife has the harder role. It's easy because she is married to a fallible, broken, often stumbling man. Don Mountain is uh, in our church and uh, Don was a missionary in Uganda. And one time he was teaching the church, teaching couples in the church about the marriage roles, the servant leader uh, and submission. And he was teaching them about the roles. And uh, this is, he was doing this in a culture that, where women do all the work. 
I mean, women do all the work in that culture. It's ingrained in their culture. So he's teaching them the roles, and then they took a break, and they had to move all these big, huge wooden benches. And the men just left. They just got up, walked over and sat under the tree and started visiting with one another. And the women, without even missing a note, just started picking up these big benches and, and struggling to move them along. And Don goes, oh yeah. He goes over to the men and he says, guys, this is what I'm talking about. Go serve your wives. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. You know, they, they walk over there and they shoo the women in the way and they start moving the benches. And when they get done, the women are standing there and they're just smiling so big and they start clapping for the men and telling them, good job. You know what I love about that story? I love about the story is that the women didn't lecture them, didn't criticize them and say, well, it's about time. <laughs> no, they, they, they cheered for them. Let me say something. Ladies, if your husband is with you in church today, then when you go home, you ought to tell him thank you. Because a lot of men don't go to church. A lot of men don't listen to God's word being preached. A lot of men aren't humble enough to do that. And you ought to tell him thank you. You ought to tell him he is such a man. Well, the purpose of submission is the completing of one another, wholeness. But, you know, Peter adds some extra insight to this because Peter says that a wife's submission in marriage is powerful to transform her husband. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter. He says, in the same way, in the same way, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So let me ask a question to the wives. Do you, be honest, do you want to change your husband? Everybody wants to change their spouse some, right? Are you going to change your husband by lecturing him and criticizing him? No, he will only be changed. He will only be because he's melted by grace. And Peter says that submission has so much power that it can change a man without a word. Not meaning that she doesn't speak, just meaning that her behavior is so strong and so beautiful. Peter says, in the same way, before he, before he goes on. And what he's referring to, he's referring back to something he had just said. He had just been telling them about how Christ himself humbly suffered under unjust authority. That Christ suffered under unjust authority. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. That's strong. Now, he is not saying that a woman ever puts up with in marriage abu abuse, physical abuse, or verbal abuse. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if your husband is difficult, <laughs> he's saying let the gospel transform you so that your life creates an earthquake of gospel power in his life. I mean, right now I could stop the sermon 
and I could get Ray up here and we could stand and just go back and forth and just give you names of men over the last 25 years who we have seen the behavior of their wife transform them, convert them, bring them to repentance, bring them to the gospel. I still remember talking to a guy out in the Northex named Tom and he is weeping, retelling the story of 20 years earlier, how his wife's graciousness transformed him. There was a wedding where the best man was the brother of the groom. And so this brother of the groom stood up to give the traditional reception toast and they're, they're taking their spoons and they're hitting the glasses and everybody's waiting for him to speak. And this, uh, this best man, the brother, gets up to say about his brother, he says this. He says, it is no secret to anyone here that I've never liked you. Okay. All of our lives we have fought and have argued and have been like oil and water. We are still very different in many ways, but I've grown to love the person that you have become since the day you met her. The more you are with her, the more I'm drawn to you. The more you're with her, the more I want to be around you. The more you're with her, the more I see the best version of yourself. Ladies, the power you have in your man's life. When I do premarital counseling, at some point I always lean across my desk and look into the eyes of the future wife and say, you have no idea how powerful your words are in his life. You will destroy him with your words or you will create an unstoppable force of a humble, gracious man by the way you love him. Leverage it. Finally, Savior Jesus. Paul says that it's a profound mystery about Christ and his church. You know, so, the, so the husband has this Jesus role that he plays in the drama of marriage. And the wife has a Jesus role that she plays in the drama of marriage. But both are like, who's up for that? I mean, who, how can, it's, it's just so overwhelmingly hard. We will never understand the Bible's call on men and women in marriage unless we see Jesus as the ultimate man. He had the strength to command the storms and summon an angel army. He defeated death. His arms held little children with tenderness. He elevated women. He welcomed the poor and the needy. He took a whip and he drove those out of the temple uh, with his strength, but he still was tenderly welcoming outcasts and weak people. And after he was mocked and beaten and abused by the guards, Jesus was displayed in front of the crowds with a crown of thorns and they ridiculed him. And Pilate brought him out in front of the crowd, beaten and bloodied. And then he looked at the crowd and he looked at Jesus and he said, behold the man. Do you see it? Do you see the irony? Those words are dripping with irony. Jesus is broken and he is dying. He is giving his life to marry his people. He is the perfect 
man. Nobody who uses the Bible's teaching on marriage to justify chauvinism, abuse, or the denigration of women has ever looked at Jesus. Behold the man. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes your scripture and your truth by the power of your spirit is overwhelmingly beautiful. It's beautiful that you are our groom and that we are your bride. That you would love us as powerful as everything in this passage. And Father, there are many in this room that hurt in their singleness, in their divorce or being widowed. There are many struggling in their marriages. And Jesus, we need you by your spirit to bring completeness and wholeness. Would you bring forgiveness and grace and power to renew us? Because we are loved by you and we cannot believe it's true. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.